COVID-19 continues to circle the globe and the pandemic is very much still with us as we wage an individual and collective global battle against an insidious invisible enemy. Let's talk more about the coronavirus right here on another special episode of The Nurse Keith Show. Hello and welcome to The Nurse Keith Show. I'm privileged to have the opportunity to use this platform to educate and inform you, the Nurse Keith Nation, so that you can take any information you find useful and share it with those you care about. I'm committed to regularly publishing episodes related solely to the COVID-19 pandemic. These episodes will always be free of corporate sponsorship and advertising of my business. This is solely about education and information as a public service. Please share far and wide if you feel these episodes are a valuable approach to the virus. And now again for my ubiquitous COVID-19 disclaimer. All information in these episodes about COVID-19 reference the most up-to-date information I can access, as well as personal opinions and reactions and reflections from yours truly and my guests. Please note that the situation is changing by the moment, and any information shared in the course of my COVID-19 episodes may not apply once that data has been updated, expanded, or contradicted by the ongoing collection of evidence-based scientific and medical information and discovery. Please also note that nothing shared in the course of any Nurse Keith coaching COVID-19 podcast is intended for diagnosis or treatment, so please consult your healthcare provider, the CDC, the WHO, your local health department, or any other evidence-based resource that you trust. And if you hear or read something I have shared that appears to be erroneous, please leave me an email at keith at nursekeith.com with any evidence or data you can share so that I can learn from you and post a public correction. Thank you for understanding, stay safe and keep informed. And today is COVID-19-6 and I am here with Victor Lacherva, MD, my dear friend and colleague who lives here in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Victor, welcome to the Nurse Keith Show. Pleasure to be with you, Keith. I really appreciate all the good work you've been doing putting good information out. Thanks, Victor. And the same to you. And we're going to make sure my audience, the Nurse Keith Nation, knows all about your podcast, My Heart Songs, which is actually putting out some really awesome episodes about COVID-19. They're short, they're brief, they're heartfelt, they're compassionate, they're evidence-based, and you're doing a really awesome job as well. There's lots to talk about, Victor. And, you know, how long have you been a, a physician? Uh, I graduated medical school in 1973 and worked uh, in the New York City area for uh, quite a number of years uh, on the faculty of New York Medical College. Myself and another attending basically ran the pediatric emergency room at Metropolitan Hospital, which um, covers uh, 42nd Street to 125th Street, river to river. But when I moved to New Mexico in 1980, I wanted to live in Santa Fe and not Albuquerque, and so I opted. Uh, to give public health a try. Hmm. So public health. And I know you were also an emeritus clinical faculty at the Department of Pediatrics at UNM Medical School. That's the University of New Mexico. So I guess what I want to establish here is that you are a credible, intelligent, highly educated physician with many years of experience. So you're bringing a lot to the table. And I appreciate that. And I also want people to know we're friends. So This is a conversation among friends and colleagues, and this is really, gosh, I mean, COVID-19 is a moving target, right? I mean, everything seems to be changing and pivoting. So what's your strategy personally? Because I I know you're a retired physician, but you're still, people are reaching out to you and you're podcasting about it. So where do you go for your best data And how do you keep yourself informed and keep some of the noise out of the conversation so that you can focus on what's real? Well, that's a great question. And um, after a long career in public health, uh, most of us who worked in the field were not surprised um, that COVID-19 appeared on the scene and that the spread has been as rapid as it has been, because most of us have realized for years how underfunded public health was compared to the latest, greatest laser treatment or the latest, greatest cancer treatment, things that are very important, but we've long ignored uh, our public health infrastructure. 
So the American Public Health Association has a great website which, with lots of up-to-date resources. Of course, my years of working with various people at CDC uh, is an important source of information. I get the daily New York Times um, coronavirus briefing, which in general is very good. It is. They've been doing a good job, haven't they? Yeah. Un- yeah. Very good, unbiased reporting. And uh, I like to keep my finger on the pulse of how the business world is seeing things since so many of our politicians are very much connected to the business world and the business world affects everybody. Uh, And so I tend to read Bloomberg uh, as well. Bloomberg puts out a lot of um, important up-to-date information every day with their TV and radio stuff, but also once a week with their magazine. That's true. And then, and then I also, as I'm sure we'll get to at some point in the conversation when we talk about taking care of ourselves, I really try and limit my exposure every day. Um, so I do a pretty focused hour in the morning of trying to catch up on whatever might be new and relevant. I spend at least two hours a day uh, reaching out to people and um, either providing medical input or checking in. I have, um, we have, uh, my wife and I have two. Uh, close couples that are infected with COVID. Uh, one couple clearly diagnosed in Colorado, the wife is now in the hospital, and another couple in New York City, not able to get tested, but clearly have all the symptoms and are moving through it. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry about that. And I'm sure you're a great source of solace and real information for them. And we also have some friends who are sick in various places, and I've been checking in with them every day following their symptomatology because they're actually, when they do telehealth with some of their providers, I feel like they're not getting the best information. So one of my friends, her um, doctor said, well, when you can't breathe, call 911. That was basically the instructions. And I was like, well, let's talk every day and follow the course of your illness. And you know, you and I are, are, we're not on the front lines. I have friends in ICUs and ERs all over the country. You probably do too friends and colleagues. and But we're doing the service we can do, and we're privileged to do it from the comfort of our own homes. And I acknowledge and salute the people and bow to the people doing that frontline work. And everybody has a part to play. Even if you, like I've said on another episode, even if you're just filling the med box of the little lady next door. I mean, there's plenty of things people can do, right? Oh, absolutely. Um, it's amazing the amount of communal cooperation that's occurred, given that three quarters of Americans are now under shelter or stay at home uh, public health type orders. Right. And a a recent survey said that 90% of them think that's, that's okay. That's what we need to be doing. Wow. So uh, that I think really shows up in terms of, I did a, um, you're asking about, you know, how I'm taking care of myself personally and my involvement on a personal level. I did a, um, a shopping uh, yesterday, two stores, uh, enough to, to get us probably, you know, I'm Italian. So what can I say? Normally I go every couple of days, to get fresh <laughs> right. produce, but, um, but that's not possible. And, um, so, uh, everybody in, everybody's being very respectful. You know, I use the touchscreen, uh, gizmo to check out at, uh, market street. And right. As soon as I finished the person who was there watching all four of those, came up, wiped the thing down. Um, I've seen an increase in people wearing masks, but the main point is that people are really being kind, uh, being generous, and um, doing their best to keep uh, safe distance while in the store. Um, I think it's a, a wonderful uh, piece that's finally hitting the news that our frontline grocery workers farm workers, Mm -hmm. um, people providing those types of essential services are finally being recognized that that they need to have positive protection and that they need to be informed. And um, again, I just see an an overwhelming amount of kindness emanating from people in those public situations. That's beautiful, Victor. What a nice reflection. And I was saying on another episode with a friend, I think it was with my friend Lizbeth Overton, that when I go to the store, I tell the cashiers and the people stocking shelves, I say, thank you for your service. What you're doing, keeping us fed, is just as important as a nurse in an ER. It's just different. 
and the people who work in laundromats and dry cleaners and all the other services happening are so important. People who work in gas stations and, you know, we need people in banks and gas stations and of course, cafes and restaurants, some of them are doing takeout and we're thankful to them. And we're also worried for our local businesses that are, that are possibly won't be able to come back. So, you know, I'm worried about some of the shop owners and restaurant owners I know in Santa Fe and everywhere. Well, I always loved Stephen Covey's uh, circle of concern, which is broad and wide, and circle of influence, which tends to be more narrow. And for many of us, back in January, this was part of our circle of concern, uh, virus outbreak in Wuhan and China. And it's very rapidly moved into our circle of influence, where we can make a positive impact um, on people in our community. Wow. Victor, that's very interesting, that whole idea of the circle of concern versus the circle of influence. Influence. I will look that up. Stephen Covey. Great. I will find a link to that and put it in the show notes. That's wonderful. So on your podcast, I think it was episode 87, you mentioned um, your recommendations to share, to care, to be more community and communally minded. You, You mentioned your concerns about all the workers who don't have mandated paid sick leave. Um, You said how many states have mandated paid sick leave? 12? Yeah, very small number. I I mean, you you really pointed out something that I've been thinking about, but I'm so glad you mentioned it on your show. And you also brought up the underinsured immigrants, the undocumented, the homeless, people who work in the gig economy. And the one phrase you used that really brought it home to me, and I think it was episode 87, was social injustice. So tell me about your thoughts about justice and injustice in this social scheme. Well, there, there's no doubt that if you look from a public health perspective, if you look at any major category of illness, whether it's heart disease, cancer, diabetes, uh, or infectious diseases, uh, the poor and People, uh, especially rural folks with limited access to healthcare, always suffer the burden of those diseases much greater than folks who have resources. Absolutely. Um, so uh, the the reality is is that this virus really serves as a mirror for us to look at all the things that we've tried to sweep under the rug and basically ignore. As I also said in that podcast, there's no short term solutions for long-term neglect, Mm-mm. even even though we're grateful that there's, you know, whatever it is, $2.2 trillion coming in aid. Um, my wife uh, does taxes for a living, and um, she's being bombarded with questions because of the overwhelm, the no- large number of people in our community who work the gig economy, artists, musicians, massage therapists, and so on. Uh, restaurant, many restaurant people. And um, yes, there is this unemployment assistance coming, but nobody's figured it out yet. And I think the state had half a million calls yesterday. uh, Just Half a million calls in New Mexico alone? Something like that. Or maybe it was 50,000. I might have that number wrong. 50,000 sounds a little better for a a, a state of 3.5 million million people. (laughs) But anyway, it was overwhelming to the systems. Oh my gosh. So, so the point is though, that the, that, that for sure COVID-19 pulls a mirror to to us of, of some of the social inequalities um, that are very prevalent in our society. And I know that you and I have some disagreement about this, but this is not the big one. Um, uh, I've said all along, and and I will keep I will keep saying it right. that until until we have accurate denominator numbers, we don't really know the true mortality rate. Right. And and even Fauci, uh, Dr. Fauci himself, has recently said that it looks like this is going to turn into a seasonal event. Uh, and we'll know that for sure as we start to see the those areas of the world that are currently in uh, entering into their fall, but yeah. have been in summer. They re- there's less than six percent of cases in that right. in that band. Right. It's, uh, so so anyway, the point is that we still, while this is a 
disease of enormous concern and is having enormous economic, social, and health ripples Absolutely. into all of our all of our systems. Right. The reality is that it's maybe going to turn out to be, in my opinion, two or three times more lethal than the flu, which is still significant. Sure. I mean, since October, the CDC guesstimates that we've had 46 million people infected by the flu in this country with about 45,000 deaths. And right. we basically, as a society, don't really blink an eye at that. Uh, and part of that is that we have some medicines and we have some vaccines. But I still believe that the big influenza and another virus, do -si do is going to happen in China. They're going to swap some genetic material. And yes. we are going to end up with a true mortality rate of close to 10% in a virus that spreads as easily as the flu. You know, I think you're right about that. And you've probably, and I want to get back to, to um, COVID-19 in a sec, because I have some information I wanted to share with you and see if you've read it yet that came out yesterday in The Lancet. But um, I just heard, and I'm not sure if you heard yet in The Times, that there's a bird flu that just emerged in chicken farms in a province of China called H5N1. And yeah, that happened. That actually happened in February. So February. that's been going. That's been going on now for right. a couple of months. And they've culled tens and tens of thousands of chickens. However, the concern I've read so far is that a lot of those did get out into the public and get eaten. And there are concerns about what this virus might do, and they're just keeping a close eye. So, you know, I know. We know that COVID-19 emerged from bats, and there are some people in China and other countries who actually eat bats, and that it also, there's reports, you know, of the wet markets in China where they slaughter animals right on the street, and there's blood everywhere, and then you have pigs and dogs licking up the blood. So we have a definite socio-cultural economic problem in places like China where the ways in which they process, let's just say, animals um, where they process meat is problematic. So I know you and I can't solve the problem of how they, the gastronomic <laughs> um, practices, cultural practices in China, but do you have concerns that things in China may not change around the wet markets and the way in which they process poultry and meat? Well, I, I watched a, a very interesting video about a week and a half ago uh, which was sort of the history of the wet markets in China mm -hmm. and how they they started out as an economic response to severe uh, poverty, particularly in less populated areas. That oh. it was one way one way to bring in a source of income for people who are basically starving. Start raising a bunch of chickens and, and then take the chickens to market and protein. Exactly. Income and protein. Right. So I don't, and then the government actually went through a period where they were encouraging uh, wet markets. Uh, my daughter actually has a book coming out called Feasting Wild, which is all about humans' relationship to uh, eating wild foods. Uh, goes into it in quite a bit of depth and uh, with, a, with a lot of poetic storytelling along the way. You can pre-order it on Amazon. The basic point of that, though, is that these wet markets are not going to go away. They're very much intertwined in both the economics and the culture of many places around the world. Right. Uh, and but what need what we need is a little more public health awareness in ter in terms of how they're run. I see. Um, the other interesting phenomena is this. You, you mentioned bats. Um, Bats seem to have a very unique immune system. I was just reading about this a week ago or so. Ooh, tell us more about that. When they go into flight, their metabolism ramps up almost 10 times their normal baseline metabolism. And this, what this does is it allows their, uh, you can almost think of it instead of a slow wave in time when our immune systems respond to uh, an insult, Okay. Because of this heightened metabolism, the bats have this incredible capacity where their immune system gets incredibly switched on and then drops down. Incredibly switched on and then drops down. And what this allows for is many viruses to gain a foothold, but not enough of a foothold to make them sick, which makes them an ideal candidate to be a reservoir mammal. 
that's the reason for the bat transmission. And can you send me a link so we can put that in the show notes? Because there might sure. be people out there who really want to understand this more. And that's that's fascinating. So thank you for elucidating that because you know, people are talking about the wet markets. They're talking about, you know, the eating of bats and also how bats it can jump species in different ways. And right, the right. blood in the streets at the wet markets, et cetera. And the hygiene is sanitation. So Well the you, other piece the other piece that you mentioned about the pig um yeah. china has the greatest concentration of pigs on the planet they do and the, and the pig is a species that is capable of harboring both human influenza virus and avian flu virus so oh. it's not exactly related to covid but that's where i have always felt the big one was going to come from that there's going to be Ooh. a genetic dance between those two viruses inside a pig infected with both and then we'll end up with a very highly spreadable high mortality virus. So this wow. is all a good wake up call. It's all good preparation. Um, and I think, uh, I think part of the good news, which, which we need to talk about is, mm -hmm. you know, it's just absolutely incredible. And this next podcast I'm going to do this next week is entitled, will technology save us? Great. Because there's been this incredible, I mean, to, to decode the RNA structure of this virus within a month is absolutely astounding. This is something that normally would take a year. Absolutely. And, people are, and people are talking, we already have vaccine trials in humans happening. The first phase, which is not so much to look at effectiveness, but to look at safety. Safety comes first before effectiveness. And I right. just wanted to mention here that you probably don't know this because I don't think I've told you that. My nephew's wife, um, they both live in Brooklyn. She's doing her PhD in molecular biology at, um, at Cornell. And there's a lab in Manhattan that's a, that's a coordinated effort between Cornell, Harvard, Columbia, and one other university, I think. And I think it's called the Broad, B-R-O-A-D Institute or Broad Lab. And what they're doing is she's the head of automation. So the robots that do all of this all the work that they do. And they're sequencing the genome of saliva and blood from COVID positive patients. And they're looking at, you know, we already have the genome of the virus itself of COVID-19, but they're sequencing the genome of the saliva and blood. And my brother just got a job before COVID exploded as a lead um, molecular biologist at the Weiss Institute at Harvard, W-Y-S-S. -S. It's a very cutting edge biotech kind of laboratory research facility at Harvard that Harvard doesn't have many fingers in their pie. So I think they're, they have a lot of leeway, latitude, and he's now head of COVID-19 research at the Weiss Institute at Harvard. So there's cool stuff happening and I'm happy to know people who are like in there because I can get a little insider information from time yeah, to time. Yeah, it'd be great to have one of them on your show because clearly the role of epigenetics uh, in this virus is enormous. Uh, you know, we know all the stuff about older people and underlying conditions and even some of the data with the younger people who are becoming severely infected indicates that the bulk of them also have some underlying conditions. You can have bad diabetes or bad asthma when you're 25. Um, but but the point is that, uh, again, uh, trying to elucidate who is most at risk yes. and who, from a genetic point of view, is likely to be completely asymptomatic and just be a carrier uh, is, is very important in terms of the various puzzle pieces that need to come together. Absolutely. And, you know, Korea and China were doing 10,000 random tests a day, and they were getting data on asymptomatic people, moderately symptomatic people, severely sick people. So they were collecting lots of data, doing random testing, and they were able, and like, even the little town in Italy, I'm sure you, you read about, and you, do you still have um, citizenship in Italy? Victor? I, I do have dual do. citizenship and I yeah. have been in touch with half a dozen folks over Good. there and support them and also, uh, you know, get to see what their reality is like with this lockdown. Yeah. But there was this little town, I don't know how many people were in it in Italy, I'm sure you read about it, where they tested every single citizen and as they kept finding positive people, would quarantine them and they just kept doing that over and over. I don't know yeah, how they accessed just out just outside of Venice. Yeah. Just outside uh, of Venice. And they and are they now had much lower. Yeah. 
amazing, amazing, like local public health response. So, so um, thoughtful and scientific and, and it's a little microcosm of the macrocosm. And they, you know, they didn't need to do 10,000 tests a day because it was a very small town, but they, they are an example of a very interesting and effective way to, to isolate this virus and basically kill it in their little town. Well, it's a, it's a basic, you know, the two, the two pillars, containment and then mitigation when Ex- you can't absolutely. contain it. Yeah. And this is, a, for example, I, I worked in STD clinics for many years when I was with the health department. Mm, mm-hmm. and whenever we had a positive case of gonorrhea or syphilis, all the contacts got investigated. Some people got epi-treated. Uh, the rapidity of this virus and the contagiousness, of course, has prevented that. And that's why we've had, had to go on from containment, which is the first line of defense, to more mitigation strategies, all the business, you know, everything with the social distancing and so on. Yeah. It's, um, you know, I was the public health nurse for a town of 25,000 in Massachusetts during H1N1. And I learned a lot, cut my teeth during H1N1, doing mass vaccination drills and educating the public. I'm not sure if you knew that. It was Amherst Mass. And we coordinated with the University of Mass. So we had basically had 50,000 people we were trying to educate yeah. and get ready for mass vaccination and vaccinate 3,000 people a day as needed. So we knew how to do that. We did tabletop exercises, and then we did the larger real-time exercises with volunteers but I also did tuberculosis surveillance and contact, you know, we had to do contact surveillance and I had to go and give people their medicine every single day to make sure they right. took it. Right. And, you know, so, yeah, I mean, public health isn't sexy. It happens in the background. Nobody wants to know about it until they need it. And I feel like, like my friend Lisbeth Overton said on the last episode, we need to be bowing in gratitude to public health professionals and realizing the importance of public health. And my hope is that with this dismantling of the public health system over the previous however many years, especially the last three and a half, hint, hint, um, there's something that has to change once we once we contain this virus and we're back to some semblance of normal, and I'm using air quotes there, we need to decide how important public health is and how much we want to fund it and how sexy it really is because it is so very important. ICUs are great. ERs are great. They're really knocking themselves out, out there and I bow to them. But, and if we had a public health system that was fully responsive and fully funded, how crowded would our ICUs and ERs be right now, Victor? Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, obviously we're preaching to the converted here. We are, maybe. And, maybe not. <laughs> and, but, uh, but preaching, to, but, uh, but as they say, it's all about getting the choir to sing the same tune. Exactly. Uh, and, and be in harmony. So Thank there's no, no harm in that. No. Uh, yeah, the intricacies of what goes on in the ICU you know, low flow versus high flow nasal oxygen, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm out of that loop altogether, but I read with interest the data that is coming in. Me too. Which is, you know, high flow oxygen spreads the virus around more in the ICU. Aerosolization. Oxy- yeah, exactly. Uh, there's a, an Italian study that came out from one of the doctors on the front line there where he went through a number of uh, bullet points uh, talking about that level, up at that level of intense care for people, the whole business of first pass tracheal intubation mm-hmm. success, mm-hmm. making sure that you get the person intubated on the first pass. Exactly. Uh, rapid onset neuromuscular blockade. Yep. Um, making sure people are truly asleep or in semi-coma so they're not fighting the tube and spreading exactly. more aerosol around. So Thank yeah, there's all, there's all of that data that's, that's emerging that's really critical for us to understand. And the public health data is how we base policy and how we move forward. So uh, public health data is what has been elucidating, for example, that this virus is uh, very infectious before you even begin to develop symptoms, as opposed to the flu, Mm -hmm. where your highest viral load is on the third or fourth day when you feel like crap and you're probably not spreading it around to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, those kind of one study uh, uh, that came out of the Netherlands 
showed that 6.4% of the 13, 1400 uh, healthcare providers in one hospital setting were infected and didn't know it and had little or no symptoms. Oof. And so uh, <laughs> there's that piece of it as well when you have uh, healthcare providers uh, who are um, still walking around hospitals because of le- lack of PPE, potentially spreading the virus within that environment. Sure, we're going to put a mask on when the, when the unit comes out from the ER to admit a COVID known positive sure. uh, patient. But within that whole hospital environment, um, our lack of protective equipment is is also helped spreading it among healthcare providers. We had 30 right. doctors, 30 doctors dead in Italy mm-hmm. uh, to date so far that I know of. Um, a well-known so doctor the, died here this week. A well-known nurse died in New York City last week. And they're just examples that we heard about in the news. Right. Right. They're the so, ones who, so, got the, who got out into the news, those deaths. Yeah. So strengthening the public health infrastructure, which is a, a lot of what our conversation has been about so far, right. is clearly important because it gives us the data on, on how to move forward and to see where these weak spots uh, might be. And the yes. good news, of course, I like to keep coming back to good news. Please, go people, for it. Go people for need it. good news, you know, is that Abbott Laboratories came out with a little, uh, um, you know, five-minute test. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, a five-minute test or 13 if you want a more extensive analysis of the virus. Okay. Uh, then they're saying that they can do 50,000 tests a day starting tomorrow. That's wonderful. And then we're, we're also going to have to watch to see if they can figure out and tell us how many false positives they're getting, how many false negatives they're getting, what the controls are. So this is all so complicated. Always true when you fast-track anything. Always true. And, and this, this, this got fast-tracked FDA approval. Yeah. And the Monday morning quarterbacking is going to be fascinating. That's <laughs> yeah. when we have a Monday. Um, now, Victor, I wanted to switch from public health to um, some more kind of epidemiological and kind of clinical and pathophysiological stuff. And again, I'm not a diagnostician. I have a bachelor's degree in nursing, but I've been doing a lot of reading and I just wanted to discuss something with you. Um, I'm not sure if you saw what came out in Lancet Infectious Diseases on March 30th. That was yesterday by Robert Verity and colleagues. Did you see that? Okay, so it's very, very interesting. And um, they're looking at fatality rates. And here's here's a quote from it. I just wanted to, wanted to read to the audience and to you because this is stuff that I've been thinking about and I've been looking for more data. So it says, Comparisons of case fatality ratios for SARS-CoV-19 and seasonal influenza in different age groups are shown in the figure, and I have the figure here and I'll put it in the show notes. Even though the fatality rate is low for younger people, it's very clear that any suggestion of COVID-19 being just like influenza is false. Even for those aged 20 to 29 years, once infected with SARS-CoV-2, which is COVID-19, the mortality rate is 33 times higher than that from seasonal influenza. For people aged 60 years and older, the chance of survival following SARS-CoV-2 infection is approximately 95%, which I'm very happy to hear, in the absence of comorbid conditions. However, the chance of survival will be considerably decreased if the patient has underlying health conditions and continues to decrease with age beyond 60 years. So this very interesting um, graphic from The Lancet compares SARS and influenza with a 95% control, and they run it by years. And if I'm reading it correctly, and I'll send it to you. I, I saw, I actually saw a summary of it now. Yeah. I didn't read the article, but I saw a yeah. summary of it now it, that you're mentioning it. So age, age greater than 80, um, COVID-19 fatality ratio is 13.4%. And it says, if I'm reading it correctly, it's saying influenza would be 0.0487. So I'll have to send this to you so we can pick this apart. Um, but what what they say here is that- I can pick it apart right now. <laughs> go for it. Tell me what this <laughs> we means. We do not have the exact denominator because Tell it's me. a moving- We don't Tell have me. the exact denominator. It's a moving target. And most of the testing that's still in this country and around the world has been done on people- 
who uh, are most severely ill. And Comorbid. that's so right. Yeah. And so then your, your mortality rate, of course, is going to look high because you're the cohort that you're testing. Think of it as a triangle. The people that are dead are at the top of the triangle, the, yes. that's the top of the pyramid. Right. And we don't know the extent of the base of the pyramid. So people make all these kinds of projections. There was a one out of the folks in Great Britain that were talking about millions of deaths in the U.S., millions of deaths in the U.S. They're all projections based on guesses that don't take into account that we still don't yet know the real denominator. And the right. only way we're going to know that real denominator is when you have pretty much universal testing. Right. That's what they did in China and Korea, 10,000 a day. So Now, now I, would ju I will just give you, again, another piece of good news. Tell me. Uh, from a study that I just read um, that was a study uh, that looked at 2,000 young children in China from mid-January to mid-February that showed that 90% of those 2,000 reported cases in children in this one particular province um, had mild to moderate disease. Which is what we want, 90 to 95%. Exactly. That's and what that, we want to see. But, but among less than one-year-olds, yes, 10% um, of that population was severe or critical. Right. And we so, lost an infant in Chicago last week from COVID. Yeah, so, so. so it's sort of coming out to be what we traditionally say about influenza virus. And that right. is the very old and the very young are most susceptible. We have to have our index of suspicion high we do. Uh, in those cases. Right. So, but I'm happy to, I'm happy to look at the article in more depth, but uh, I, I, there's so many, there's so many of these coming out with projected mortality rates. And I, I usually, I take a quick glance and then I let it go. Well, let me, let me read you another, yeah, let me read you another quote from this Lancet article that I'll send you by Robert Verity. It says, the authors argue that crude case fatality ratios obtained by simply dividing the number of deaths by the number of cases can be misleading because there can be a period of two to three weeks between a person developing symptoms and that case being detected and reported. And because surveillance of a novel virus is biased towards detecting severe cases, especially at the beginning of an outbreak when test capacity is low. So they're saying how in mainland China, um, by using individual case data for mainland China, um, adjusting for demography and age-based and location-based um, information, they estimate the mean duration from symptom onset to death to being 17.8 days. Um, so there, it's interesting information. I'd love to have you read it and give me a little more, just give me your feedback about it. Cause it's, I'm, you know, all of us are trying to, you know, you and I are not epidemiologists, you know, we're not, we're not active public health professionals anymore, but you and I want to educate people and ourselves. And there's so much data, it's hard to pick this all apart. Right. And it's such a challenge. Well, as, as I said, uh, yeah, I'm happy to look at the article and uh, any projections of mortality in the absence of more universal testing. I mean, again, the good news is that when you have a, a small country like Iceland test huge amounts of their population on a per capita basis, way, way far in advance of anything that we've been able to do, even in any particular state. And they tell you 80% of the cases are mild or asymptomatic. Um, that's that's good news. That is good and, news. And and I'll just say that a place like Iceland, being so isolated out in the ocean with one airport, they have the the is it luck or just the demo, just where they happen to be geographically and otherwise that you know they have one airport they can shut down. You know they don't have other ports of entry and they're not surrounded by other countries with open borders they're out in the ocean and that i feel that's so wonderful for them that they can be so isolated and have so much control right so here we have different things happening in the states in your other land of um love and citizen citizenship is italy your beloved italy and didn't italy at first shut down all the states in the north and then kind of moved south till each state was shut down? Yeah, each province, and yeah. Do you, each province, right. Do you feel that that was done in a timely manner and that 
that was an effective thing for them to do in terms of really ramping it up so that only people with a real reason to cross province borders could do so? Was that smart? I think that the reality in Italy, unfortunately, you know, again, we're doing we're doing the the uh, the retrospectoscope again. Yep, we are, uh, which is always so easy to do. But we can point, learn from and, it for and, next time. For hopefully, next time. hopefully, yeah. Uh, so, so I, I think that the that the reality uh, that many politicians face is they're trying to balance the health risks versus the economic fallout. That that's clearly what's at the front of their agenda, and it's a, an, an unenviable position to be in to try and balance those things. Excellent. I just listened to a podcast in Italian last night that was uh, all about the rebellion that is now starting to occur, particularly in southern Italy, uh, where people are starting to try and disregard the stay-at-home stuff because they are desperate. There are so many people that that live, um, you know, forget paycheck to paycheck. We're talking. I re- I spent a lot of time in Sicily. Sure. And and there are people there who make their livelihood from what they sell that day in the market. That's how they eat. And with all those markets shut down, um, people are starting to rebel. So those are the kinds of hard choices that. Pol- so I understand why, in retrospect. They did it in this gradual fashion. The reality, again, of course, is that probably the virus had been incubating in northern Italy for uh, weeks, if not months, before it reached that that sort of peak in- infectivity point where the scales tipped uh, to to take folks down into the into that descending spiral. Well, Victor, I'm I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry for what's happened in the country where you, where a large piece of your heart lives, and you have a lot of people you love and care about there, and a culture that you really care about. Well, again, I think I think it's good for us to spend at least a little bit of time talking about the emotional fallout totally, of of, totally. of coronavirus, and as you and I have both shared. Uh, uh, sort of uh, off-screen sure. uh, about, you know, that the, the whole piece that we're going through these cycles of depression, denial, anger, bargaining. Um, acceptance, the grief process. Depression and acceptance, yeah. Yep. The stages and, of grief. And, and you can see it happening uh, in a slow wave in time over the last couple of months. And you can see it happening in the course of uh, of a day or a week in individual people cycling uh, through those pieces. That's me. Yeah, <laughs> I experience so, all five. I I can honestly say, pretty much every day, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah, and of course it's magnified by things like people not being able to have the normal celebrations they have. Yeah. People not being able to visit people in the hospital unless it's a a birth or someone's near death. Some women are giving birth alone because their partners won't be allowed in the birthing suites. So yeah, even yeah. a birth, even a so, birth. Yeah. So there's many, many, uh, uh, so many elective surgeries that people need and want uh-huh. uh, are not happening. Uh, I have people in my own circle having trouble getting tests that they need to move forward uh-huh. with uh, uh, potentially scary diagnoses. So um, yeah. There, there is. Uh, so I think that that we need to be really cognizant of uh, both grief and gratitude. Uh, oh my gosh! Uh, about creating spaciousness for both. Oh wait, one one sec. I just want to point out. You just said gratitude. That is such an important word. And I just want to insert right here that on episode eighty nine, you used a phrase that I just like bowled me over this morning. It's actually the second time I listened to that episode, and you said drink in gratitude. That's a direct quote from Victor Lacherba. So did, tell me did about I say that. Really, you certainly did. Tell me about drinking in gratitude. How do you do that, Victor? Uh, well, you can pause right now and just uh, if you're in a place where you can look out a window or go outside, uh, even better mm-hmm. uh, to just do that. Just that moment. We we in New Mexico in particular, we live in an incredibly beautiful place that is not that crowded. So it's much easier for us to just get out and and drink in some of those gifts. Well, right outside your door, Victor, you have yeah, a, you have yeah. a view that any person would just 
would bowl them over the view out your living room. <laughs> yeah. So that that's one way. I mean, just looking at the people in our environment, even though they may be slightly driving us crazy because all their habits, which we normally can spread out over a number of days are sort of magnified yes, when we're true. closer together for a long period of time. But to just look at the people in our immediate environment and be grateful that they're healthy, that they're with us, that we're not totally alone. Yes. Uh, it's also possible to be, I'm grateful every morning when I check in with one of my close friends who's got COVID, uh, that, that we can use FaceTime to be grateful for the way technology does serve us as much as at times we wonder about that. Yes. And I look forward to your next episode, which will focus on technology. And, you know, I think about the people in the south, southern part of Santa Fe, South Santa Fe here, the south side, where, you know, mom and dad are gig workers or work in hotels and they have no work. The kids are home from school. They have to drive every day to pick up the school lunches that are hopefully are still being distributed. Um, they don't have much money in the bank. You know, a family member might be undocumented and doesn't even want to go get tested, even though they're symptomatic. So, and I think about the reports from India where every state border has been closed and all the rural people who live in the cities in squalor, you know, for, for money to send back to the rural towns, there are now tens and hundreds of thousands of poor Indian folks from the provinces who can't leave the cities. And if they get to the border to, their, to the next province or state, they're beaten back sometimes physically. So there's no food, no sanitation, no toilets, no hygiene. Children, elderly people, disabled people, and able-bodied people living in the streets, right, sleeping right next to each other in, in cities all over India right now. So when I look out my window, I can see the blue sky, this beautiful tree across the street, my wife's electric car, and my neighbor's um, um, hybrid car. And I think, oh my gosh, I can go in the kitchen right now. I can make something to eat. I can make a cup of tea. I can use the toilet. I can wash my hands. I can call and have pizza delivered if I want to take that risk. And I can go to Trader Joe's, which is three minutes away, and buy all the food I want. So that's drinking in gratitude there too, is that, that relative privilege that we all have to keep reminding ourselves of, but also at the same time acknowledging any feelings we're having are real and not feeling ashamed of our feelings, but not sinking so deep that we lose sight of our relative privilege. Do, do, you, do you agree with that? Yeah. I mean, I, the, the, it can always be worse mantra is always yes. there <laughs> at the back of our heads. In Italian, we have an expression, meno male, which means less bad. Oh, meno male, that that happened. It, it, ah. it, less, less bad. That's not less as bad, bad as it could have been. Meno male. Meno male. Um, meno male. male. That should meno be the name of one male. of your episodes, meno male. Um, <laughs> yeah. now, Victor, as we start to, to wind down, I just want to go back to, not to the epidemiology, but I want to talk about the summer. And in this Lancet article, they're talking about those of us who are holding on to hope that in the summer, this virus is going to go underground like so many viruses do, including influenza. I mean, how many people get influenza in the summer? You know, a handful, right? And then in the winter when it's cold, bam, influenza takes over and we have lots of illness and considerable death, like you mentioned. And in this article, I'm very interested. They're talking about that it's not just temperature, but also humidity. And they're seeing that there's a role of humidity. And they are they're talking about um, this one um, specialist, infectious disease specialist from Vanderbilt University in Tennessee, I think it's Nashville, he said, it's unreasonable, I think, at this point to expect that the virus will, quote unquote, disappear during our summer months. It's, his name is Dr. William Schaffner. Um, he said, still, I think it might give us a little bit of hope. And they're talking about, and I'll put some quotes in the show notes for folks to read, that relative humidity in places like New Mexico, where we have very low humidity, and some of the northern European countries and northern US, they're saying that the warmer temperatures aren't going to hit until July because it stays cool in Holland, in Scandinavia, in northern Germany, and the northern US and Canada, and that the very short window for the virus to kind of go underground and rest a little bit, and that 
the spread of COVID-19 due to these environmental factors might not decrease significantly in the winter in those less those less humid climates where it gets warmer just for a little while. So I would assume based on this, if this is true, and we don't know if this is true yet, we don't know what this virus is gonna do, we don't know if it's gonna mutate, we have no clue. My, my assessment based on this is that places like Florida, New Orleans, you know, those very humid places that get very hot, I think they might stand the best chance based on what I'm reading here of the virus being less active in summer. So what do you think of this assertion about humidity in relation to heat and viruses going underground? Well, I haven't read the article, but it makes a, a certain amount of sense. Okay. Um, you mentioned about the virus mutating. Uh, there are folks tracking that. And again, a bit of good news, which I like to keep coming back to. Do it. It's, mu it's mutating once or twice a week. Uh, but so far, those mutations, as most mutations are in this kind of a situation, have not increased the infectivity uh, nor the lethality of the virus. That's as good far news. As, as far as we can tell. The other, thing, the other thing is that we move along with all these asymptomatic cases into the summer. We are, as a nation, developing more and more herd immunity. There's, there's uh, right. you know, more and more indication that you get this virus and until it mutates significantly, you're immune to it. Your body remembers how to fight it. Exactly. So all these asymptomatic or mildly uh, symptomatic folks who are got the virus right now, um, you know, you take any number of any state, and it's probably ten or a hundred times that number of confirmed cases. Okay. That are that's the actual number of people walking around with the virus. Exactly. So we have that going in our favor also. Uh, is a progressive herd immunity, more than 70 drugs undergoing trials. Yes. Uh, two major companies um, working on vaccines, one already in human trials, as we mentioned earlier Absolutely. in the show, the other expected to begin in September. So I do believe, and it is a belief at this point, not based on data because we're not there yet. No, we're not. That, that, that this virus is largely going to go underground uh, within the next bit of time. Um, and that's going to uh, allow us to catch our collective breath a little bit, yeah. uh, allow for some economic recovery. And the, the big wake-up call here is that this isn't even the big one, and we've got to do continue, not let it drop off our collective radar screen. Right, because public uh, health isn't sexy, and we can't, we can't just say, oh, that was awesome, we did a great job, and now we can rest on our laurels and defund public health again. <laughs> yeah, I do think the assumption needs to be that uh, this virus may go underground a bit over the summer, uh, but then we're going to be looking at other parts of the world more affected as they enter winter, because I'm convinced yes. we're going to see that, that case load right. uh, increase. And it's going to be back next year. Yeah. And here's my one concern. You know, a lot of people, like you said, are starting to resist the, the confines of quarantine, stay-at-home orders, et cetera, like in Sicily, for economic and other reasons, of course. So here's my one concern about this. If it does go underground over the summer in certain areas, which I really hope it does, because like you said, we can collect our collective breath and figure out what the next step is. My one major concern is that a large segment of, let's say, the American public are going to say, wow, you know, that was such an overreaction. And, you know, not that many people died, like they were saying. And now, now we can relax. It's summertime. And when we want to bring these confinement type of regulations back in the fall, there's going to be more resistance to that. So I think public education is going to be so important moving forward? And do you think we have the infrastructure and the will to continue the press of information to keep the public on board with what has to happen? Do you think we can do that in the United States? Well, uh, you know, pain is a great motivator for change. Mm. And uh, I do think that people have experienced enough psychological, uh, financial, and health system pain that will keep our, our eye on the ball with this one. We're, we're not gonna have the huge uh, lack of personal protective equipment next go around that we did this time. I'm convinced of that. 
We're uh, also going to probably by the by the next cold season have uh, an easy to use do-it-yourself swab kit Wonderful. so that we won't even have to expose people and use up valuable protective equipment uh-huh. to, to do testing. Um, uh, I, I, I do want to close from my remarks with, yes. with a quote that I, that I think uh, is important, again, speaks to good news, resiliency. It's from a, a young woman named Eddie Hilsom, who was a Dutch author killed at age 29 in Auschwitz. And she says, I am not alone in my tiredness or sickness or fears, but at one with millions of others from many centuries, and it is all part of life. Oh, that's beautiful, Victor. Would you send that to me so I can put it in the show notes? For sure. And put it on social media. Now, before we say goodbye, and I want to talk to you more, and we might have to just have you back in a month or so or two months to continue the conversation. I want to sing your praises. So, you know, we talked about your medical history as a doctor and your emeritus um, clinical faculty status at UNM, but I want to say that you've been deeply involved in New Mexico men's wellness here in New Mexico, leading retreats, and you also personally help many men in the men's community here in New Mexico and beyond, and you serve as a resource for so many people, and I think that's wonderful. Um, You ran four statewide workshops on violence with the New Mexico Public Health Association in 1989 called Let Peace Begin With Us. You were interviewed by Bill Moyers in 1996 on his PBS series on preventing violence, and that was broadcast nationally. And you consulted with the community in Colorado after the Columbine school shootings. And you have a beautiful book that you you published not long ago, and I believe it's called, oh yeah, Letters to a Young Man in Search of Himself. And that's a beautiful, beautiful book. I have a copy. And you also, your first book was Pathways to Peace, 40 Steps to a Less Violent America. And in 99, you released World World Words, Global Reflections to Awaken Spirit. So you are, I see you as a Renaissance man, and you you know, you're a citizen of Italy as well. So Renaissance, I mean, it all fits. And, <laughs> you know, and, you know, you're handsome like an Italian. So, you know, you've been in public health, men's health, the men's movement, violence prevention. You're also a poetic and beautiful writer. And you've mentored young men and older men and, you know, men of all stripes. And you're a very solid member of the Santa Fe community. And you did not pay me to pay to say this, I promise. So you could cook me dinner. So, but you already have actually. So that's, that's a done deal. So I just want to point out to the audience that your work is stellar and your history is stellar. And I want them to go to your podcast. And can you share with us where to find that podcast? Yeah, just all one word, myheartsongs.org. Dot org. And, and I believe I found it on Podbean and some of the other apps. Yeah, you can find it on Podbean. It's also available uh, through the Apple Store. But yeah. um, if you go directly to the website, it, there's a pop-up and you can sign up. It's easy. It's free. I try and keep them five to seven minutes so it doesn't take up a lot of your time. Yeah, mine are five to seven minutes too. It's awesome. I and mean, you and I just got started and, you know, this was nice and brief. And, um, you know, we cut to the chase really quickly. But Victor, thank you so much. I hope to see you soon, my friend, for a social distancing outing in the park. And um, please give my best to your wonderful wife, who we love as well. And um, thank you for your time and your energy and everything you've been doing on your end to contribute to this, this putting out great information and supporting people. Thank you. Well, there you have it. Thanks for listening to the special COVID-19 bonus episode of the Nurse Keith Show. And there will be many, many more to come, I'm afraid. And remember that the show notes can be found at nursekeith.com forward slash COVID-19-6. And please, please go to myheartsongs.org, sign up for Victor's wonderful seven-minute podcast, and get a dose of information and education and inspiration from this wonderful man. I hope you feel uplifted and empowered from this episode, and I encourage you to take inspired action every day to educate, inform, and calm your friends, family, loved ones, colleagues, and members of your community. The Nurse Keith Show is adroitly produced by Rob Johnston of 520R Podcasting, who is kindly producing these episodes free of charge to me as a service to you, 
members of the Nurse Keith Nation, and those who share this information far and wide. And Mark Cappiespeason, hats off to Mark, our stalwart social media ringmaster, who's helping me to spread the word by keeping you informed via our many online platforms. Stay safe, stay informed, and be the nurse who does the right thing in the face of COVID-19. This is Nurse Keith saying adios until next time from beautiful Santa Fe, New Mexico. Thank you.